0: Good morning. It's Thursday, July 4th, and you are listening to the 24-7 Sports Morning Blitz, a daily podcast catching you up on and breaking down the day's college football news, all within 15 minutes or fewer. My name is Connor Tapp, and my co-host Trey Scott is still on the road, traveling back from the opening finals. And we'll hear a quick word from Barton Simmons later on about his final takeaways from that event. But first, let's bring in 24-7 Sports National College football writer Chris Hummer, who has an article up on 24-7 Sports sports.com today titled winners and losers from the college football transfer portal. Chris, as you know, all too well, the volume of players transferring this offseason has been immense. What kind of evaluation criteria did you use to help begin the process of whittling down the candidates to pick out some concrete winners and losers here?
1: Yeah. Winners and losers. Is, it's a very subjective idea. And certainly this column kind of covers a spectrum of the transfer portal. Um, There are definitely different methodologies that teams kind of attack this with. Some teams went with volume additions. Some teams were more targeted in the way they addressed their needs. On the flip side, in terms of losers, it can be as little as losing your starting quarterback to another school, or it could be as much as having 20-plus players under the portal. And you kind of have to combine those factors and look at like starters lost and kind of the quality of player departed and added when you kind of come up with a final list of teams that really were successful in the portal versus unsuccessful. So let's get into it. What teams stand out as some of the biggest winners? Yeah, I think if you're going to do a winner's category, you have to kind of go with Miami. Miami hit on both ends of that spectrum. On one side of things, they added immediate starting help at some positions of need, Uh, wide receiver, offensive line, safety, all come to mind. Miami had a really small recruiting class due to their late coaching change with Mark Richt. And uh, Manny Diaz kind of helped fill in the gaps with the transfer portal like that. They added a possible starting quarterback in Tate Martell. And then you also saw Miami add some, like, long-term potential uh, uh, gains with a guy like Jalen Phillips, the number one overall recruit in the 2017 class who's likely going to sit this year. But he's a guy that you can kind of count on later to make a big addition. Uh, USC is another school that really stands out. It looked really, really bad for the Trojans for a little while. But not only did they end up bringing a lot of their uh, people in the portal back, they also added a guy like Brew McCoy back to the fold. They added Chris Steele, another top 50 recruit, back to the fold. And Steele's going to start right away. They got Drew Richmond from Tennessee, who's going to plug in right away at left or right tackle. And you kind of take the totality of how – the offseason went for USC at least at the beginning and look at where they ended up. And you can't argue with USC as anything, but a winner. And then uh, like from a big picture perspective, I think there's two other types of winners outside of like those type of schools. There are the big programs that were really targeted in the way they attacked the portal. So they filled in one or two needs. Oklahoma needed a starting quarterback. They added Jalen hurts. They also added a guy named RJ proctor from Virginia Uh, They lost four starters along the offensive line. Proctor's going to help with that immediately. That's a perfect example of that. Mississippi State added a potential starting QB and Tommy Stevens. And then a starting wide receiver in Isaiah Zuber from Kansas State. They did a really good job in the portal. And then I'm going on for a little bit, but if you go to the other side of things, which is the group of five programs, if you look, there was a real pattern this offseason of group of five patterns in serious metropolitan areas or at least in like football-heavy areas like Florida, uh, Texas, and Ohio. So you saw those teams really take advantage of uh, former four- and five-star recruits wanting a fresh start at home. Houston, SMU, Cincinnati, UCF all really cleaned up in the portal by taking players that they wouldn't probably normally be able to get from a talent perspective and welcoming them back home. So all of those All of those avenues were explored by teams and they did it in a different way, but all of those teams were very successful. When one team wins in the
0: transfer portal, it means that that victory comes at the expense of another team. So Chris, tell us about some of the teams that lost in the transfer portal this off season.
1: Yeah. Losing, losing is a bit tougher of a spectrum to parse mostly because in a lot of cases, when a kid transfers, it's for either one or two reasons. It's either, They've been kicked off the team or disciplinary reasons, or they're unhappy with their playing time. And usually when a kid's unhappy with their playing time, they're not factoring into the depth chart too heavily. Um, A lot of the losers I included, uh, Penn State's a good example of that, lost a ton of players. Penn State, I believe, lost 22 players to the portal. Wow. That's an insanely high number. Uh, That is an entire recruiting class off the board, and that's not even including players who kind of opted to return to Penn State. So that number was even higher at one point. But Penn State also lost its starting quarterback and the potential starting quarterback in Tommy Stevens. And the rest of their departures probably weren't going to start, but that's like, it's quality depth that you're going to miss when you have 22 players leave. It's just, that's impossible to replace in one cycle. And a school like Penn State's probably going to feel that in the middle of the season when injuries happen. Virginia Tech's another example. Virginia Tech lost their likely starting quarterback in Josh Jackson. That's a blow, and then they also had 18 other players in the portal that uh, decided to leave, and that includes a couple of receivers who are likely to start and a potential starting line or probably a star defensive end that would have really kind of helped to upholster the rotation, especially for a team coming off a really bad season. And then there's one other really big type of loser, and it's the teams that got poached. And that's from the group of five programs mostly, where you're kind of seeing like their best player and maybe their starting quarterback, like attacked by an uh, upper level team, your uh, contenders, and then they kind of have to do without. Ball State lost a three year starting quarterback and Riley Neal to Vanderbilt. Uh, Bowling Green's starting quarterback, Jared Dodge, transferred to West Virginia. Buffalo lost its probably two best pass catchers uh, KJ Osborne's at Miami, Tyler Maper's at Maryland. You can kind of go on and on, but like Western Michigan, for example, lost Jaden Jaden Reed, who was a freshman All American at wide receiver, and he's going to play at Michigan State next. He's going to be at Michigan State next year. He's going to sit a year, but in the past, maybe Western Michigan gets to hold on to Jaden. Instead, he's probably going to be playing for another in-state program at a higher level in a year and a half, and it's just because he found another opportunity through the transfer portal. So those teams that kind of the uh, lower tier of the FBS. Are really kind of fighting an uphill battle to keep their star players in the fair of the transfer portal.
0: We're almost well. We're we've, we're past a year since the transfer portal was created. Uh, not quite a year since it became uh, such a big part of the public consciousness and players started to take advantage of it last fall. Uh, where do you see things kind of standing? Uh, we've last week we saw uh, some some rules get tweaked to kind of tighten things up a little bit from the NCAA's perspective and restrict player movement a little bit more than what it is now. Um, so what, what is the state of the transfer portal as you see it? Net good, net positive, headed in the right direction, or a lot of work yet to do?
1: I think overall it's headed in the right direction. I, I am 100% in favor of kind of athlete's rights and athletes having more uh, say in what they get to do in the transfer portal by not having to ask a coach if you want to transfer and be able to just put your name in the portal is a huge plus. Uh, There are definitely some problems. Uh, Head coaches would definitely tell you that trying to recruit your players on campus, along with trying to recruit recruits, is a headache. Uh, Players can just go to compliance and put their name in the portal, and you see some rash decisions from some kids as a result of that. Uh, I think the transfer... Rule changes that we had last week were largely positive in the sense that having more defined rules to the process is a positive. But the NCA is also going to have to take a hard look at transfer rules, like they have the last couple of years. Uh, some of the issues that the NCA raised were I, were questionable, like many NCA decisions that we've seen the last couple of years. And while I do think we're heading in the right direction in terms of athletes having more say over how their careers are going to go. We're still not quite to the point where it's entirely, uh, fair to both the coach and the athlete. And I think one of the biggest things that's missing is the uniform nature of the transfer process. Uh, every most sports in the uh, most sports in college athletics have very distinctly different transfer rules than um, college football. Uh, some of the money-making sports kind of are put on an island in the way their rules work, it's not consistent, uh, I don't think you're going to find one clear answer, but the transfer portal is another step in the process of trying to get there. And uh, I think over the next 12 months, you're probably going to see a little less action in the transfer portal. I think kids kind of have a better understanding of what the portal means for them. And they've seen some of the risks, but at the same time, you're always going to see disgruntled players looking for another opportunity. And I guarantee come week four of this season, there's going to be a couple other players. unhappy with their playtime a jump in the portal to avoid uh, kind of burning their red shirt. And uh, it's, we're in a completely new era of college football with this, and uh, it's certainly interesting to follow. Great stuff, Chris. Chris is a national college football writer
0: for 24-7 Sports. You can find him on Twitter at Chris underscore Hummer. Passion, drive, and patience. We're now going to change gears and take you out to Frisco, Texas, where 24-7 Sports Director of Scouting, Barton Simmons, submitted his final thoughts on the opening finals in the Elite 11, which wrapped up on Wednesday.
2: This is Barton Simmons. I'm here at the Star in Frisco, Texas. And the Elite 11, the opening finals, the 2019 edition of both have come to a close. And as the dust settles uh, and we review the week, I think there's three things that have stood out beyond everything else. Uh, Number one, the wide receiver position at Ohio State. I mean, talk about good hands. Uh, You could make a case, and in fact, I will make a case, that the best three wide receivers, certainly the most impactful wide receivers of the weekend, were the Ohio State commits. Jackson Smith Jigba, who can do everything you want him to do. He can play in the slot. He can play on the outside. He's a smooth route runner with fantastic ball skills. He was outstanding, one of the most productive of the day. Um, then there was G. Scott, who was a big bodied guy, who played a lot on the inside, could, could work those middle of the field routes, catch in traffic, and he also had a few one-handed catches along the way just a special big bodied receiver. And then finally, I just think the best prospect of the receiver position at the event was Julian Fleming. You just felt him on the field every time he was there, making plays. If he wasn't scoring touchdowns, he was attracting attention from the defense. He was phenomenal. Secondly, the linebacker group, unbelievable group. Typically, we put together a dream team for the opening finals. We threw a nickel in there along with a couple corners and two safeties. We're going three linebackers this year just because they were that good. They were as good as safeties covering Trent Simpson, the Auburn linebacker commit Cody Simon, the Ohio State linebacker commit. And how about 266 pound Noah Sewell? Unbelievable talent considering how big he is. He's a guy that should be best in pads. He was outstanding out here. And the guys they had to match up against is the final point. This is the best tight end class I think I've seen since I've been covering recruiting and, and they showed it this week out of the opening. Eric Gilbert was awesome. Theo Johnson, a major mismatch problem. Uh, And then Michael Mayer as well was a really good player, the Notre Dame commit. But Darnell Washington, you throw him in there, they were all fantastic. So uh, tight ends and linebackers is a great matchup throughout this year. And it's going to be fun to see where these guys land.
0: Thanks again to Barton Simmons for that report from Frisco, Texas. We send you into the 4th of July holiday on a somber note. Former Kentucky quarterback Jared Lorenzen died on Wednesday after a protracted battle with heart and kidney disease. Lorenzen burst onto the college football landscape in the year 2000, winning the Wildcats' starting quarterback job from incumbent Dusty Bonner. Over the next four years, Lorenzen would go on to rewrite the UK record books, in many instances scratching out the name of number one overall NFL draft pick Tim Couch to replace it with his own. Despite the struggles with weight that plagued him until his final days, and despite having to play under three different head coaches and a cloud of NCAA sanctions, Lorenzen endured, guiding the Wildcats in 2002 to just their second seven-win season since 1984. Whether you knew him as the Pillsbury throwboy or the hefty lefty, whether you knew him as a Super Bowl winner, whether you knew him as son or dad, you'd be hard-pressed to find an SEC football player with a career record of 14-27. and 27 who made a more indelible impression on our collective memory. Jerry Lorenzen was 38. That's going to do it for today's episode of the 24-7 Sports Morning Blitz. If you enjoyed what you heard, make sure to leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and tell a friend to check us out. For Chris Hummer and Barton Simmons, I'm Connor Tapp, and we'll see you bright and early on either Friday or Monday, depending on whether any college football news actually happens on the 4th of July, for the next edition of the 24-7 Sports Morning Blitz.